Hey, morning, everyone. Thank you, Brandon, so much for that. Hey, my name's Brad. If uh, you're visiting with us today, I'm one of the teaching pastors here. We're so, if you are visiting with us today, we're so glad that you're here. So as uh, Brandon mentioned, we're in a series in 2 Timothy, and we're walking through the words of the Apostle Paul as he's writing to one of his disciples, this young man, obviously named Timothy. And Timothy is like a son to Paul. I mean, Paul's poured his life into Timothy. Timothy's pastoring the church at Ephesus, and it's not going so well. It's a hard assignment. Uh, That church has taken his lunch money, so there's lots of problems happening in that church. And then there's also lots of problems happening for Christians outside that church, because at that period in history, Christians were actually being persecuted in the the city of Ephesus. And so Paul is writing to Timothy and he's saying, look, you got to stay with this. And one of the ways he does that is he just continues to remind Timothy of the resources that God has given him, and that's going to be no different today. So he says, hey, Timothy, you followed me. Uh, This is kind of a technical term. It's a term that we would use of a disciple following their rabbi. It's very, very, so it indicates kind of a formal uh, relationship. And then he says, "You, you followed, well, first of all, my teaching. Now, the gospel, I believe that the the teaching being referenced here is just the gospel of Jesus that Timothy had heard Paul preach wherever they went. He had heard Paul present the gospel over and over and over again. He says, you follow my teaching, you follow my conduct. This is so important. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Timothy, you've seen me practice what I preach. Like, you know that we don't say one thing and do another. Our character, my character is on the line here. You followed that. And then uh, my purpose, and Paul told us repeatedly his purpose was to glorify God. Friends, if you're here this morning, your purpose, no matter what road you're walking, no matter what your name is, no matter what family you come from, your purpose is to glorify God. In every word, every deed in your life. And then he says, you followed my faith. I mean, in other words, Timothy had watched Paul trust God to meet his needs over and over and over and over again. And he said, you followed my patience. Because Timothy had watched Paul bear up under people's attacks, watched Paul uh, respond great, with great patience uh, with people. And then he says, you, you followed me in, in the way that I love people. And so Timothy had watched Paul just over and over again and kind of pour himself out as a drink offering, not only because of his love for God, but because of his love for people and the hope that they might came, come to know the Jesus that he knew. And then finally, he says, look, you followed my endurance. It's just endurance here is kind of the ability to stick with something, the ability to remain under the pressure. He's saying, you've seen that in me, uh, Timothy, and so, you know, I want to see that in you. Now, listen, one of the reasons that I believe that Paul was faithful to the end was because he knew that Timothy was watching him. One of the reasons that I do my absolute best as a pastor to walk the straight and narrow is because I know that many of you, our staff, my kids, my wife, they're watching me. And so if I do something stupid or I step out of line, what am I going to say to my wife of almost 40 years? What am I going to say to my kids? 
what am I going to say to some of you? See, one of the reasons I cling so tightly to Scripture, that's one of the things Paul's going to exhort Timothy to do today, is because I need it to light my way. I need it to keep me from stepping off the path or out into the darkness. And so Paul is essentially saying to Timothy, look, you've seen faithful people live out the authority of Scripture in their lives You've seen your grandmother do it, you've seen your mother do it, and you've seen me do it. And then Paul begins to describe uh, the persecution that he himself has had to face. So in other words, he's saying, Timothy, you can endure persecution because you've watched me do it, you've seen me do it. And here's how he teases that out. He says, you've seen what persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, in other words, Timothy, it is rough out there and it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult for everybody, but it's for you. I want you to continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. And then he so what I love about this little paragraph is he says, hey, you know, I've been through a lot of persecutions, but in each and every one of those, God has rescued me. We serve a God that rescues. We serve a God that helps. Our Jesus is a rescuer. And that is so important because Paul lays out a principle. And the principle is this. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So he's saying, look, persecution is inevitable. Yeah, I mean, you know I've been persecuted, Timothy. I know you're facing persecution right now. We all have to be ready for that. In fact, there's another letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he actually uh, kind of lays out some of the very, very specific persecutions he's been through. And so I want us to kind of read through that list together and kind of think about this. So Paul says this, he says, five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Now, uh, under Jewish law, if you receive 40 lashes, that was a death sentence. 40 lashes would kill you. And what they would do is they'd take a little whip and they'd weave little fragments of metal into that whip. They would rip off a, a man or a woman's shirt and they would hit them on the back either 39 or 40 times. And Paul says, five times I was beaten literally within an inch of my life. And every time Paul took off his shirt, people would see all the scars and all the marks of these lashings that he had received. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. So he's saying, people picked up rocks and they tried to end my life with those rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been on frequent journeys. I faced dangers. You're going to hear the word danger a lot here. I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers. I mean, you get the idea, right? Paul faced a lot of danger. 
He says, I've faced toil and hardship. I've had many sleepless nights. I've gone hungry. I've gone thirsty. I've gone often without food. I've been cold. I've been without clothing. Not to mention other things. Not to mention the other things. There is this daily pressure on me. And this amazes me as a pastor. He says, in other words, it's as if he's saying, on top of all that, as if all of that wasn't bad enough, there's this, there's this concern that I have for the churches, for the bride of Christ, for all of you that attend those churches. I want to see them go, do good. I want to see them do well. And so I worry about that. I mean, just Paul's heart here is so incredible. Now, listen. You and I, I mean, if you listed all the ways you've been persecuted, I guarantee you it wouldn't even come close to this, right? So our persecutions, the way we're persecuted in America is going to look vastly different than the persecutions that Paul had to endure. But I know this, I mean, if, if it's true that everyone who wants to be a godly follower of Jesus Christ is going to face persecution, it's vital, even though we won't have to face persecution like that, it's vital that we be ready for it. It's vital that we be prepared for it, right? And so what, do you, what Paul's going to do here next is he's going to say, look, Timothy, the persecution you're going through it, you can't let that rock your world. You have to move forward. You have to keep preaching. You have to keep speaking. You can't give up, Timothy, because God hasn't given up on you, and neither is I. Here's how he says this specifically. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you've known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying is this. He's saying, look, keep moving forward, Timothy. Don't let these struggles get you down, knock you down. Keep teaching Scripture. Scripture reveals our need for salvation. Scripture reveals the Jesus who brings our salvation. In the middle, Timothy, of a world where people are persecuted and life is hard, people need Jesus. This book changes lives, Timothy. It offers salvation through Jesus Christ. And nothing in the world is more important than that. It's important for people to know Jesus because, precisely because, life can be hard and difficult. Now, when it comes to suffering or trials or hardship or whatever you know, label you want to slap on it, you have to know something about the way the writers of Scripture frame and talk about suffering because they say something over and over and over again about suffering that just sounds ridiculous. I mean, it just seems utterly absurd. They actually say, that we should welcome suffering into our life as a friend. <laughs> they tell us that we should welcome it, that we should embrace it, and that we should wring it dry. Who talks like that? Well, they do. And I think there are three reasons for this, and it's really important to think about and to frame the way the biblical writers think about suffering. So, so there's three reasons why they say that. First, 
because suffering more than anything else in the world makes us dependent on our Jesus. And there's nothing more important than dependence upon our Jesus. I mean, just waking up every day and saying, you know, I can't do this without you. I need your help. I need, I need your strength. I need your hope. I need you, Lord Jesus. There's nothing more important than those kinds of prayers. Suffering makes us dependent on Jesus. But secondly, suffering, the biblical writer tell, writers tell us, uh, brings about the character of Jesus in our lives. And to the biblical writers, there's, I mean, if we take the character of Jesus to heaven when we go to heaven, there's nothing more important than that, nothing more vital. They are far more concerned about our character than our comfort. They just are. And then thirdly, the third reason I think they talk that way is that suffering gifts us with the strength of Christ. In other words, it makes us stronger. So if God wants to grow a squash, he takes a summer to do it. If God wants to grow an oak, he takes hundreds of years. And do you have any idea how many storms that oak has to endure to become strong? One of the best examples I can think of of this comes from the life of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I talk about Abraham Lincoln uh, as often as I can. He's my, uh, my, by far and away my favorite president, and I'm going to tell you one of the reasons why. So Lincoln was born into abject poverty in a one-room log cabin on February uh, 12, 1809, He was forced to drop out of grade school because his family was so poor, he needed to be home to help his father work. In fact, his father wanted him to become a farmer and a frontiersman, and uh, Lincoln refused to do that. Didn't had you know, different aspirations, obviously, but this only fueled his father's disappointment in him. They never had a good relationship growing up. Lincoln was mostly self-taught, obviously. At the age of 23, he bought a general store in New Salem, Illinois in 1832. The business wasn't successful. It went bankrupt. It took Lincoln years to pay off Uh, the debts from that. He lost his first love, a woman by the name of Ann Rutledge, when she died in 1835 of typhoid fever. Uh, Immediately after her death, Lincoln suffered what is sometimes called a nervous breakdown today. In fact, he suffered from depression and melancholy all of his life. Lincoln ran for the U.S. Senate twice and lost. He ran for the U.S. House of Representatives twice and lost before finally getting elected in 1846, but the failures Lincoln endured only prepared him for his time in in, in office. In 1839, Lincoln opened a law office without the benefit of law school. He taught himself law. In 1842, Lincoln married a woman by the name of Mary Todd. Together they had four sons, Robert, Edward, Willie, and Tad. Edward died when he was three. Willie died when he was 11. The deaths of each of these sons devastated both of their parents. In 1860, Lincoln was elected president of the United States by less than 40% of the popular vote. 
He gave his inaugural address knowing that army sharpshooters were guarding him from Confederate sympathizers. He was heavily criticized by both Democrats and Republicans while he was in office, and he was utterly despised, detested by more than half of our nation. Still, He worked tirelessly to pass the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which, as you know, formerly formally outlawed slavery throughout the nation. After the Civil War ended and the South surrendered, surrendered, Lincoln began to give himself to the reunification of what he called the Republic. He was very invested in that. Yet, despite all of Lincoln's setbacks... All of his misfortune, he is considered by scholars, by historians, and the general public to be one of the greatest presidents in American history. I mean, think about it this way, friends. No one in the world has been written more about than Abraham Lincoln. The only person who's been written about more than him is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 18,000 books and counting have been written about Abraham Lincoln. The Lincoln Memorial and Mount Rushmore both pay tribute to him. One author says this, he says, Lincoln epitomizes the American dream. He came from nothing to eventually become the president of the United States. And this author goes on to write this, despite his personal demons, despite everything that was thrown at him, Lincoln never gave up. He was a man who grew under his mistakes and from his misfortune to overcome what he calls nearly insurmountable odds. So here's the point, here's the takeaway. All of those early obstacles in Abraham Lincoln's life, those were the things God used to prepare him to endure the most brutal and difficult presidency in the history of our country. Because he had to endure trials early in his life, he was equipped to handle the far bigger trials that would come later in his his life. That's what suffering does, or at least what it's meant to do, what it's supposed to do. And this is why the biblical writers always more concerned about our character than our comfort say, Welcome trials into your life as a friend. They are, they are doing good things for you. They're not, per, they're not purposeless. They're not random. They are purposeful, and God will use them in your life if you let him. So Paul is essentially saying to Timothy, Timothy, I know it's tough out there, but let God use this in your life to make you the man he wants you to be. Keep moving forward. You have the scriptures. You know salvation. Keep offering that salvation to others, Timothy. Sure, life is hard, but that is precisely why people need a Savior. It's why they need our Jesus. Keep preaching the gospel, Timothy. You know, one of the core values of our church is this. Here's the way we articulate it. We say, we around here, we will wreck the roof 
to remove unnecessary barriers that keep people from Jesus. That, that's part of our DNA. But I know some of you are here and you're like, what's up with wreck the roof? Like, where does that come from? And so I want to walk you through a fascinating story from Mark chapter 2. Now, I'm not going to read through that story for you. That would take too much time. But I'm going to kind of walk you through the story. And as I'm walking you through it, you can read it, uh, you know, behind me on the screens. So, um, yeah, so this story involves a paralyzed man who has some incredible friends, amazing friends. And what made them so amazing is that they weren't going to let anything stop them from bringing their friend to Jesus. So these four friends had heard that Jesus was in town. Jesus' popularity is on the rise. So these three friends think, hey, we've got to get our paralyzed friend to Jesus because, you know, maybe he can do something for him. But right out of the gate, these friends run into a problem. And the problem is they can't get their friend to Jesus because of the size of the crowd. I mean, there's so many people there, right? Jesus is like a rock star. People are trying to get close to Jesus, and they just can't do it. The crowd is in the way. Now, listen, sometimes in a church... It's the people, it's the crowd that follow Jesus that get in the way of other people coming to Jesus. Things like judgment, hypocrisy, self-righteousness, and coldness can keep people from seeking the healing that Jesus can provide. Here's what I want you to know, friends. People who are put off by Christianity are seldom put off by Jesus. They're put off by the crowd of people that claim to follow Jesus. But in this story, these friends are not going to let, they're not going to let a crowd stand between them and Jesus. So they come up with a plan. They will carry their friend on a mat up to the terrace on top of the house. And once they're on top of the house, they are going to begin to dismantle that roof piece by piece and bit by bit and then lower their friend down onto the floor right in front of Jesus. So remember, this is going to be messy. I also want you to remember that Jesus is teaching. He's talking while these guys are tearing a big hole in the roof. I mean, imagine if you're the owner of that house. I mean, imagine how furious you would be. Imagine how his call to his insurance company might go, hey, you know, Jesus was here. Can we call this an act of God? I hope so. (laughs) I mean, imagine what would the crowd see? What would they think? You know, these guys are making a ruckus. I mean, they're flat out being rude and disrespectful while Jesus is trying to teach. You know, so they would have been, they would have felt aggravated. They would have felt annoyed. But what does Jesus see? He doesn't see dust. He doesn't see dirt. He doesn't see an interruption. He doesn't see debris. He sees faith and he loves it. He sees people who came to him with a need. And what I love about this, he doesn't see, he doesn't see the faith of the, the guy who's paralyzed, the guy who's laying on a mat. No, he sees the faith of his friends. See, sometimes 
you need a community of faith around you when life gets really hard. Because so that when your own faith falters, when maybe you don't have faith for that day, somebody else can give that to you. And that's the gift that these friends give to him. You know, and so this should just blow the lid off of some of us, how some of us currently think of God, that he's too important for us, too distracted by other things to care about us, that maybe God's too angry with me to address me or speak to me. Well, Jesus shows us here that he is all too willing to be interrupted, even rudely interrupted. Because Jesus didn't just come to be a teacher, he came to bless people. He came to invest and help people. And so we would expect Jesus to say in response to their faith something like, hey, go in peace, friends, your faith has made you well. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says this. He says, child, your sins are forgiven. Now, I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, child, you are perfect the way that I made you. He doesn't say, child, just learn to love yourself the way that you are. He doesn't say, just learn to believe in yourself. He doesn't say any of that. Now, in our culture, that's, all, that's the gospel that the rich and wealthy like to proclaim to the rest of the world, right? They say, hey, well, just learn to believe in yourself. Just accept yourself. Well, Jesus says, no, 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 no. This man had sin, and that sin needed to be forgiving, forgiven, see? He speaks unapologetically about sin and repentance and forgiveness. And he doesn't just offer this man forgiveness for some of his sins or maybe his top 10 worst sins. No, he, be, he forgives him for all the sins he's ever committed, ever, whether in word, deed, or thought. I mean, when you think about it, right, how much trouble can a, can a guy that was born paralyzed get into? I mean, how much trouble can you get into laying on a mat? Well, apparently, even someone who can't physically uh, find their way into sin, it can still show up in here, just like it does for you and just like it does for me. And by the way, it's funny in this story, forgiveness comes across like an easy thing to say. Like, like it would be easier just to say, you're forgiven than, hey, get up, take up your mat, and walk, right? And, um, and so it kind of comes off. I mean, compared to making a cripple walk, it seems to kind of play second fiddle. But I wanna, it's so important that we understand this, friends. There is no miracle. There is no miracle greater than, um, you know, than the gospel. There's no miracle greater than the forgiveness of sins. I mean, that miracle breathes new, a new creation into a human soul. It places us in Christ and places Christ in us. It's the miracle of salvation, the miracle of forgiveness, the miracle of blamelessness in God's sight, of being adopted into God's family as a son or a daughter and being given a position of prominence in the kingdom of God. And by the way, that miracle is going to cost Jesus everything. It will cost him his life. 
It will cost Jesus everything to be able to utter the words, child, your sins are forgiven. So let's not cheapen that phrase. It deserves way better. Now, I think the religious teachers in this story get a bad rap. But they did get something right. They understood something that you and I don't often understand when we look at this story. They understood how serious it was that Jesus claimed to have authority to forgive sin. See, they knew that that was something only God could do. And that's why they use this word blasphemy. And so often in the Gospels, people would be with Jesus and they would be thinking something and Jesus would know what they're thinking and then talk to them about what they were just thinking. It would be kind of unnerving, really. And Jesus kind of makes this a habit. He does this here. So he knows what they're thinking. So here's what he says. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is, make no mistake, this is all about authority. Our Jesus has authority. In other words, Jesus says, hey, it's easy to say, say to someone, right, because who knows whether they're really forgiven or not. You can't, you can't verify that. It's easy to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus does something else to demonstrate his authority. He says to the man who's been paralyzed since birth, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. And we're told that's exactly what this man did. Now, what amazes me about this command of Jesus is that Jesus doesn't ask this man to climb a mountain or swim the ocean or run a marathon or trek across a desert. All he asked him to do was something very mundane, something that uh, we do uh, all the time, every day. He said, I want you to stand up, I want you to pick up your mat, and I want you to go home. He didn't ask him to do anything headline-grabbing, anything sensational. He only asked him to do simple things that all of us do every single day, and yet we take for granted. But for this man, these things that we take for granted, they weren't even possible apart from the grace of God. Sometimes Jesus is going to ask you to do things that will be impossible for you to do apart from the grace of God. They may not be headline-grabbing things or sensational things, but they will require his grace nonetheless. And some of them will just be mundane and simple things. Hey, I want you to encourage that coworker. Hey, I want you to write a note of encouragement to your friend. Hey, I want you to make a meal for your neighbor. Hey, I want you to serve this person in your small group. I want you to buy a gift for your coworker. They need this thing. I want you to get it for them. See, little things, mundane things, things that will never make the headline, and yet you'll have the freedom to say no. And apart from the grace of God, you may, and I hope that you won't, you know. And I want you to think about this, too. If this man's been paralyzed since he was young, all of his muscles would have atrophied. He would have had no muscles, no muscle tone. Jesus not only cures his paralysis, he throws in a toned body as well. Some of you are really perking up now because you're thinking, I could use a toned body, I really could. See, Jesus doesn't just heal his body, he heals his heart. He heals his soul. And I want us to think about this man for a minute. 
Because his story, we don't recognize it at first, but his story is remarkably similar to ours and to mine. I want you to think about this man. All of his life, he's been confined to a three-by-six mat. That was his world. It was all he knew. Nothing could be done medically. There were no surgeons. There were no surgeries, no rehab programs, no treatment centers. In other words, this guy had no hope. There was no way for him to contribute to society. He has no money. He has no job. He has no influence. Well, what does he? He only really seems to have one thing going for him. He he has some really amazing friends. You should also know that friendship would have been next to impossible for this man. Because of his physical condition, he couldn't get out much. There wasn't a mechanism, a way for him to get out and mingle and meet people and make friends. And more importantly, because of his physical condition, he would have suffered from another stigma. See, the word on the street in Jesus' day was, if you were paralyzed or crippled, you had done something to make God angry at you. And so uh, the word on the street was, this guy must have done something really bad to have had to suffer the way that he had suffered. So very few people even wanted to be your friend. Because if God doesn't like you, why should we? Yet in spite of all of those obstacles, friendships came. And what I'm saying is that this little community did not develop by accident. You don't just drift into Christian community, friends. It has to be intentional. You have to be committed to it. You have to sign up for it. You have to show up for it. These guys were a a part of this guy's life because they made the effort to be. Christian community takes effort. It takes intentionality. It means that you will have to say no to some other things. And I also want to point out one more thing about a mat. It is really, really vulnerable to, to have someone else carry you on your mat. Because here's the thing, That mat represents, I mean, if it stands as a picture of human suffering and brokenness, if it stands for imperfection, then everybody has a mat. You have a mat. I have a mat. Maybe your mat is a temper you can't seem to control. Maybe your mat is fear. Maybe your mat is a need to be in control. Maybe your mat is bitterness that's just risen up in you and you can't flush it out. Unforgiveness towards somebody in your life that God is asking you to forgive. It's a funny thing. Sometimes people will try to pretend they don't have any mats. They'll hide their mats behind their back. They'll pretend to be more spiritual or further along or more holy or more in love with God than they really are just to kind of manage, you know, their reputation. 
This is one of the reasons I think we so need community as Christians. You know, a small group of Christians around us who will point out our sin, my sin. Because here's, here's what's true about me and what's true about you. Like when I'm by myself, I can deceive myself into thinking like I'm this incredibly loving, patient, warm, caring, forgiving guy. Because there's nobody around for me to be irritated with, right, or to have to forgive. See, a community is what will point out for me my needs to grow. And community is what points out in you your needs to grow. Because all of a sudden you realize, I'm not as patient as I thought. I'm not as loving as I remembered. Because uh, loving people takes effort and work, right? You know what we ought to call that? What we ought to call that kind of fellowship? We ought to call that the fellowship of the mat. Because we all have one. We all have one that we need to offer up to Jesus, right? This is one of the reasons that we say so often around here that growth and transformation happens better in circles than in rows. So in other words... In our minds, if you can only do worship on a weekend or a small group through the week, I'm going to point you to the group through the week. In fact, can, I didn't do this, and I probably should have. Do you guys have the ability in the booth to throw up our, um, our logo, church logo? I think I saw it a little earlier. There it is. See the circle? That's why that's our logo. That's not by accident. We believe people learn better in circles than in row, rows. We believe people celebrate better together. We believe people pray together better. We believe people grow together better. You need Christian community, a Christian community like this man with the mat. And so let me just ask you to think for a moment about what your mat is. Because that'll give you a clue as to what it is you need to ask Jesus for in these next few moments. Maybe some of you have a friend who needs to know Jesus. Then, you know, then pray for him as we're praying together in just a moment. Whatever your mat is, ask Jesus to bring healing into that area of your life, into that temper, into that bitterness, into that resentment, into that unforgiveness, whatever it might be. So let me pray for you and for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the day. I thank you for an opportunity, Lord Jesus, to pick up our mats and to take them and to go home. God, just a mundane thing, but God, you do incredible things in mundane activities and mundane things. And so would you rescue some of us from the mundaneness of our lives? Would you do extraordinary things through these men and women? Would you set them apart for good works? Would you heal whatever their mat, whatever mat they need to bring to you today? Would you begin to heal that today in them and for them? Would you have compassion on them? Would you give them comfort? Would you speak a hopeful word to them? Would you remind them that they don't carry that mat alone, that you've given them amazing friends, 
that you've placed your Holy Spirit within them. You've placed your word before them. You yourself, Lord Jesus, have said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. So would you speak that comfort and that hope today as it's needed? God, would you give strength where it's needed by your Holy Spirit? Would you give wisdom where it's needed by your Holy Spirit? I ask this in your mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. And so may you know the grace, the mercy, the help, and the hope of your Jesus this week. God bless you guys. Thanks for worshiping with us. Hey, don't forget, we do have, um, in just a couple minutes, another uh, Q&A with, our, uh, with Angeline Denny, our uh, potential children's pastor. That's, again, as Brandon mentioned, in 204. So you do need to rush over. You've only got a couple minutes. We want you to, if you're a parent, we want you to pick up your child promptly today so that some of our workers can get to that Q&A. Amen. God bless.